All right, so today we are looking at just two things, really, theft and lying. Um, so we're trying to summarize two commandments in one lecture, um, the seventh and the eighth commandment. Um, the seventh commandment we've already looked at in our last lecture on environmental ethics. And one of the reasons I spent so long looking at that topic as a thing in itself is what the church teaches about property and theft only really makes sense in the context of the broader thing about all of creation being a common good gift to all of humanity. Yes, yeah, so I tried to articulate that a number of times in our lecture on the environment, talked about how the environment therefore can be talked about in terms of property and environmental damage in terms of theft. So that when I damage the environment around me, the generation that comes after me has had it taken away from them. Whereas it should have been left here as a common gift for them to enjoy as well. When within one generation, we steal, for example, I talk about water rights, um, you take you divert the river so that your nation gets it and the neighboring nation doesn't, that's theft. Um, and all of that is because of this foundational principle. At the moment of creation, God made everything for man, and it's a gift for not just you and you, but the common gift of all humanity. And when we talk about private property, we have to understand it in the light of that primordial gift to everybody. Okay, so front page of the lecture notes there, um, just kind of two major bullet points on the seventh and eighth commandment. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. So what does that commandment include? Well, the catechism puts into there so just at the universal destination of, common, of human goods, um, so given to all of humanity. The notion of property, the notion with that of private ownership, and the whole package of the social doctrine of the church is summarised in the catechism there. Uh, Josh, can you read that quote from the catechism for us? The seventh commandment forbids unjustly taking or keeping the goods of one's neighbor and wronging him in any way with respect to his goods. It commands justice and charity in the care of earthly goods and the fruits of men's labor. For the sake of the common good, it requires respect for the universal destination of goods and respect for the right to private property. Christian life strives to order this world's goods to God and to fraternal charity. Okay, so we're going to unpack some of that as the first part of our lecture. The next part is going to be on the Eighth Commandment, that thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. So that includes everything to do with truth, communication, uh, and we're going to follow in particular, f focus in on particular, the question of lying. Um, Carlos, could you read the block quote there from the Catechism, the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbids representing the truth in our relations with others. The moral prescription flows from 
Okay. So those are the two things we're going to be looking at this morning. So over the page. First, got a little page here trying to summarize the concept of property and related to that, the concept of theft. So the top of the page there, I articulate two key principles here. So as I've said several times already this morning, first, there's a universal destination of human goods, and that's the primary reality. But second, there is a right to private property, but that right isn't absolute. So the Marxist analysis says there is no such thing as private property, that ownership is theft, that it all belongs to the state. Um, well, the Catholic Church says, no, there is private property. There is a right to private property. But if you've not heard this point before, I want you to grasp today that the church's teaching about the right to private property is that this is a secondary reality, secondary to the primary reality that all the good things of this world are a gift to all of humanity. Okay, so I quote there on the page four paragraphs from the Catechism. Um, let's go around the room and Pat, can you read the first of those? In the beginning, God entrusted the earth and its resources to the common stewardship of mankind to take care of them, master them by labor and enjoy their fruits. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. However, the earth is divided up among men to assure the security of their lives endangered by poverty and threatened by violence. The appropriation of property is legitimate for guaranteeing the freedom and dignity of persons, for helping each of them to meet his basic needs and the needs of those in his charge. It should allow for a natural solidarity to develop between men. Okay, Nick, next one. The right to property acquired or received in a just way does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole mankind. Universal destination of goods remains primordial, even if the promotion of the common good requires respect to the right to private property and its existence. Exercise. Sam? In his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns not merely as exclusive to himself, but common to others also. In this sense, that they can benefit others as well as itself. The ownership of any property makes its holder a steward of providence with the task of making a fruitful and communicating its benefits to others, first of all, his family. Okay, Lu Luciano, can you read the next goods of production? Goods of production, material or immaterial, such as land, factories, practical or artistic skills, oblige their possessors to employ them in ways that will benefit the greater number. Those who hold goods for use in consumption should use them with moderation, reserving the better part for guests, for the sick and the poor. And can you get the next slide, please, as well? Political authority has the right and duty to regulate the legitimate exercise of the right to ownership for the sake of the common good. 
Okay, so what phrases in that strike you are not what you might expect from your common parishioner understanding of possession, property? Here's a production, they should benefit the greatest number. They're not for yourself, you see private property, not just about yours. But the community that you're living in. In the light of what's been read there, when you give to charity, do you think you are giving your money away or do you think you are giving back what is actually already the community's? Because according to what the church is telling us, the, primor the primordial, is the phrase there, reality, is that the good goods of creation are for everyone. So that when I'm giving to charity, I should have this sense that I am returning to the community what actually belongs to the community. Which actually isn't what we tend to think. We tend to think, this is mine. I worked for this. And I'm being super wonderful by giving what is mine to somebody else. So when you preach about property in the parish, when you preach about ownership, when you preach about generosity, this sense of the common ownership of the goods of creation is a really important truth to try and communicate to people. And people will resist it because it's not how we are used to thinking. This is mine. I worked for it. Okay, let's answer that question by thinking about what owning something at all means in terms of the right to private ownership. Okay, and then come back to that question. Um, so, I've got a little section here summarizing St. Thomas's argument for the appropriateness of private property. So, and, you know, there's a couple of articles he gives on this in the Summa. So first, and he... Here is articulating Aristotle's argument. He says possession is natural to man because of his reason and will giving him dominion over external things. That this is just what a rational being does. He gets things, finds things, has dominion over them by his reason and will. The second article is more interesting. He says that to procure and dispense the goods of the world, private ownership is better than communal ownership because man is more careful to procure what is for himself, whereas a man is more likely to shirk from work if the fruits of his labor are only for the common good. 
human affairs are more orderly if each takes charge of a particular thing himself, whereas when he, uh, uh, as he does when he owns a thing. And he notes that quarrels arise when there's no division of things possessed. But concerning the use of external things, he says private ownership is limited in that man ought to possess things not just as his own but as common, and that he is ready to communicate them to those in need. Now let's pause for a minute and think about this in the light of um, a religious community, because you know he was a friar, so he'd have been thinking, I think, with his friar's hat on in articulating this, but also even within the PCJ community here. So in order for things to be acquired and dispensed, different people have different jobs, different house jobs. It wouldn't really work if we just said, well, it's all everybody's responsibility. And this is the notion of ownership in Thomas's vision here, that you can only make that common ownership effective if different people have responsibility for different bits of the goods of creation. And that's what private ownership means. It means you take this thing that is for all of humanity and you are responsible for it. Now, if you just have a situation where everybody is responsible, as I say, and as he articulates, actually that just doesn't work. Nobody does anything. And as he starts by observing, it's part of human nature that we are more careful about the things we are acquiring ourselves. We just look after them better. little line says quarrels arise when there's no division of things possessed what, what is he saying it's like things aren't um, given to particular I, I really understand what that line is saying um, so the pool table in the pub who's responsible for it who gets to use it lots of things because they're communal people can fight over who whose turn it is yeah Whereas ownership is one of the ways it becomes private ownership, clear who has a right to use it. The pool table's mine, the table tennis, the ping pong table's yours. Um, a clear demarcation stops quarrels. This thing, St. Thomas says, that you are more careful about the things you acquire for yourself. So back in the days of communist Russia, um, I can remember my grandpa would um, frequently talk about the fact that there was a phase when the communists realized that the workers just weren't working on the land because they didn't get any benefit from it. It all went to the state. Um, and so they gave in addition to the 
hours and labor they had to do to the common land, in many areas they were given a bit of land they could use themselves and have the benefit of themselves. Uh, and supposedly they actually produced more on their small bit of private land because they were responsible for it and getting the benefit from it than they did for the stuff that just went to the state. And you don't need to think long to think why that would be the case. Um, and that's how St. Thomas starts his argument about private ownership being better in order to procure uh, and dispense things. Okay, let's clarify this a bit more by the definition of theft. So how is theft defined? Well, as the Catechism puts it there, theft is the usurpation of another's goods against the reasonable will of the owner. And that's one of those definitions where pretty much every single word in that sentence matters. You drop one word um, and it becomes something else. So say, for example, a reasonable owner would give food to a starving person. Thus a starving person can take food that does not belong to him because goods like food exist for all humanity as their universal destination. So quoting St. Thomas, in cases of need, all things are common property so that there would seem to be no sin in taking another's property, for need has made it common. Have you all heard this principle before? Because it's some... From me, okay. Because um, you'll sometimes hear people say, oh, well, theft isn't always a sin, is it? Um, even though the church teaches that it is. Well, but the church is careful on how to define theft. Um, so I'm Bill Gates, I've got my mansion, my multi-mansion, with the big wall around it, and there's somebody starving at my gate. Um, it's not just me being generous if I give him food, actually, the common ownership, the primordial gift, actually I'm giving back to him the food that is actually his if I feed him. And if I don't feed him and he takes from me anyway because he's starving, according to the catechism that isn't theft. Now, to come back to Joe's earlier question, which is kind of, well, what's the limit here? And the church doesn't have a precise formulation of what is the limit. This is the principle. Um, but it does change what our understanding of generosity is. That it isn't me giving away what's just mine. 
is me returning to the community that actually belongs to the community, that I should own it so that the use of external things is ready to be communicated to those most in need. So against the communists, we say private ownership is real, private ownership is a right, that private ownership is just how humans function. But against the capitalists, we say private ownership is not absolute. Now it is a curious, a delightful fact of history that America is um, you know, the most generous nation uh, in terms of the percentage of money that ordinary people give away. It's much bigger in this country than, than elsewhere. So you know, Western Europe, where I'm from, um, there's just this expectation that the state does everything. And that I don't give it away is the government's job to take care of other people. Um, if I think it's always the government's job to take care of other people, I've lost sight of my relationship to others, my relationship with what I am. So there is something in the American dynamic of, yes, all this acquiring of stuff, but with a great generosity. But if we're going to come back to the Catholic vision, we need to kind of refocus that generosity in, in an understanding that we're giving back to the common good, to, to the community, what belongs to them already. Comments, thoughts? Have I answered your question, Joe? in as much as we're going to get an answer. So when we tithe, we are giving back to God what is his. Um, yes, we're only, the scriptural 10% is only 10%, but the vision that should go with that is that it is come from him and is to go back to him. And that, that spirit should kind of animate how we do everything. And so, if I buy a television, if I buy a laptop, um, I try to tell myself that the money I'm spending on this, you know, I could be giving away, that actually this is, in some sense, a, a common use. I, I'm a steward of these resources I have, um, and I have to, in a sense, argue for why I need this why it's appropriate for me to have this. Rather than giving it to feed the hungry. Okay, page three. I've got a section here called Love for the Poor. So, and 
And here I'm just trying to summarize a whole section in a few bullet points. So I know, firstly, the Catechism has a whole section called Love for the Poor in its treatment of the Seventh Commandment. So second, in the context of considering poverty and ownership, the Catechism says, love for the poor is incompatible with immoderate love of riches or their selfish use. Uh, how many of you have heard of liberation theology as a, dare I say, a living reality? So when I was in seminary, it was still very fashionable as a thing. Um, it's no doubt still got some adherence. It doesn't have the, the fashionable status it, it used to have. Um, but Marxism inspired this thing called liberation theology, particularly in parts of Latin America. And it had this phrase, a preferential option for the poor. So in all of our analysis and all of our thinking, there should be a preferential option for the poor. Now the catechism rephrases that in terms of love. So a preferential love for the poor. And wanting to phrase that not just in concern for the material order, which is what the Marxist thinks that's all there is, but the spiritual order as well. So Max, can you read that quotation? So this is in the Catechism, but it's quoting a document on um, critiquing liberation theology. Preferential law for the poor in both spiritual and material forms. In its various forms, material deprivation, unjust oppression, physical and psychological illness and death, human misery, is the, most, is the obvious sign of the inherited condition of frailty and need for salvation in which man finds himself as a consequence of original sin. This misery elicited the compassion of Christ, the Savior, who willingly took it upon himself and identified himself with the least of his brethren. Hence, those who are oppressed by poverty are the object of a preferential love on the part of the church which since her origin, and in spite of the failings of many of her members, has not ceased to work for their relief, defense, and liberation through numerous works of charity, which remain indispensable always and ever. Okay. Um, and then my fourth point there is that this thing, liberation theology, there have been many church documents uh, either critiquing or clarifying it, saying, well, if you mean this, then yes, the church is with you. If you mean that, then no, the church is not. Um, Sam, can you read that bullet point that starts in the recent past? Yes. So this is quoting from John Paul II in Trentissimus Annus. In the recent past, the sincere desire to be on the side of the oppressed and not to be cut off from the course of history has led many believers to seek in various ways an impossible compromise between Marxism and Christianity. Moving beyond all that was short-lived in these attempts, present circumstances are leading to, re, to re, reaffirmation of the positive value of an authentic theology of integral human liberation. Considered from this point of view, the events of 1989 are proving to be important also for the countries of the third world, which are searching for their own path to development, just as they are just as they were important 
for the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. So Trinitismus Annus um, was written just after 1989, the fall of communism. Sam, yeah? Yeah, uh, do you mind just talking a little more about liberation theology? I'm still not quite clear. I don't want, I mean, just a little bit, because we're, we're talking about how it's kind of like not right. We're talking about, I don't know what it is. Yeah, that's a big question for me to try and give. So I'll try and give you an answer. Um, one, one answer, if I'm honest, I'm not an expert on liberation theology. Liberation theology uh, called upon, in terms of liberation, uh, the poor masses to liberate themselves from the oppression of the rich. So it would take its inspiration from texts like um, Exodus and the liberation from Egypt. Um, like Marxism, it phrased everything in terms of class struggle. So rather than seeking to reconcile the rich and the poor by a preferential love for the poor, the critique, the complaint was that it phrased things in terms of the struggle uh, of one group against another. Like Marxism, it therefore looked not look to the state to solve the problems um, rather than looking to empower the people to solve problems through, among other things, the ownership of private property. So 1989 was the fall of the Berlin Wall. None of you were alive then. Um, I, was, I was 19 when that happened, and it was amazing what an instant change it made to everything. So that growing up in my teenage years, we lived in the constant expectation that any moment the Russians might wipe us out with nuclear weapons. The, the constant point of comparison with this state ownership of everything that was there in the East. And when that fell, the question was, is the only alternative, therefore, capitalism? Because communism had its chance. Nearly half a century, nearly half the world ruled by communism. Um, had so many different countries it could have succeeded in, and it failed in all of them. Is the only alternative communism, uh, capitalism? And that's what John Paul II issued his encyclical Chantismus Annus to ask that question. And basically his answer is, well, yes and no. That if by capitalism you mean unregulated rule by the market, then no. That the state has a role, but the good of the dignity of the human person is promoted in democracy is promoted in free enterprises, promoted in the development of capitalism, of capital in capitalism. But that, that all needs to be regulated to ensure it serves the person and the common good doesn't just serve itself. That doesn't really give you much of an answer about liberation theology. You will do a more thorough analysis of social doctrine when you come to that course. Um, 
I think that's all I can hope to, to give you as an answer today. Other than to put before you that there are these different notions of property, of state, or not, in terms of the, the relationship and dynamic here. And that the church is proposing not a middle ground between capitalism and communism, but a different solution to capitalism and communism. Okay, let's move on to the other commandment we're looking at today. So let's turn to page five. And look at the question of lying. Um, so there's a quote there, or as I say there, lying is an intrinsically evil act. So when the Catechism talks about intrinsically evil acts, one of the examples it gives, we're on page five. We've skipped a couple of pages. Um, when the Catechism talks about intrinsically evil acts, it gives lying as an example. Um, and then quote St. Thomas, also St. Augustine, every lie is a sin. And then quoting the Catholic Encyclopedia, that this is simply what's called the common teaching of Catholic theology. The problem, though, is how do you define a lie? So that's basically what I want to spend maybe half an hour doing with you this morning, because it's not as simple as you might think, how to define a lie. So the classic definition, uh, if you look at the footnotes, if you want to trace this, there's a very good article um, by Janet Smith, um, one of the best moral theologians uh, alive. Um, there's also an article. You're familiar with the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1913. So if you go to the New Advent website, which I guess many of you are familiar with, you'll not only find the entire Summa Theologica there, um, but you'll find encyclopedia references to this massive volume, the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia. And it was a, you know, a good encyclopedia has had good editors who get good quality people to write on all the different topics. And this was a masterpiece, so it kind of remains a standard reference point. So when you've got a question like this, that lying hasn't really changed in the last hundred years, um, that the 1913 analysis is pretty much as good for us today as anything. So that's why those are footnotes to the Catholic Encyclopedia. So lying as defined by St. Thomas is a statement at variance with the mind. So a statement, but what's in my mind is something else. I say that's a very nice shirt you're wearing, Josh. But what I'm thinking is something else, yeah? There's a variance between the statement and what's in my mind. The Catechism phrases it slightly different. It says, to lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead someone into error. 
So the intention there is very clear in the catechism's phrase, in order to lead someone into error. Now, why is this important? Um, well, first, the question of communication. So, as rational beings, as social beings, communication is really important to us. This is a big part of being human. And to say that lying violates the purpose of communication. And then follow um, Janet Smith's analysis. Everything and every action has a purpose. Things have natures given them by God. And to violate those natures is to do wrong. The purpose of enunciative signification in words or actions is an attempt to assert a truth about reality in order to convey the concepts of one's mind. You know, why do we speak to somebody else? Because we're trying to convey to them what's in my mind. I come in and I try and tell you about the weather forecast. It's in my mind, I want to let you know. That's why I'm speaking to you. Now, lying is a sin because it violates the purpose of enunciative signification. In quoting St. Thomas, for as words are naturally signs of intellectual acts, it is unnatural and undue for anyone to signify by words something that is not in his mind. So it's contrary to the nature of speech, the purpose of speech. It violates the significance of communication as a social being, a rational social being. With me so far. So, Janet Smith then has so called this section, not every literal falsehood is a lie. So contrary to St. Thomas, but using his methodology, Janet Smith argues that the nature of language is such that language must serve many other purposes besides the conveyance of the concepts in our minds. We need to correct, to console, to encourage, and not deter one another. Thus jokes may contain literal falsehoods, but in a context such that they do, don't violate the purpose of communication. Similarly, many common courtesies are contextual, have contextual and cultural meanings that are implicit. For example, saying, I'm fine, in response to the greeting, how are you, signifies virtually nothing and is heard as a general pleasantry. Yeah, so if you said to somebody, but you told me you were fine, you lied to me. Well, no. Yes, the words I spoke were a literal falsehood, but they just have this common packaging. You know that they don't mean much in particular. Second example, when a statesman or a doctor or a lawyer is asked impertinent questions about what he cannot make known without a breach of trust, 
He simply says, I don't know. And the assertion is true. It receives the special meaning from the position of the speaker. I have no communicable knowledge on this point. Now, this is something you as future priests need to be very clear of. So I, you know, I have all kinds of things I know from confession. I may not reveal those. I may not reveal those even indirectly. The priest has that knowledge. The confessor has that knowledge. I do not. And so when someone asks me a question outside of confession, not to the confessor, so to speak, I can only answer with that knowledge that the external person has. And so that isn't a lie, it's just speaking as I am in that context. And if you ask me as the confessor, I'm going to simply say, well, you know I can't tell you anything about that. I can't even tell you whether that person came into confession. So the context changes the meaning of lots of things we say. So it can be a literal falsehood without being a lie, is what Janet Smith is arguing. Sam? Yeah, uh, I, do you think that Janet Smith would say Aquinas disagrees with this, or would Aquinas disagree with what she's saying? Because it seems pretty common sense to me, and I, get what she, I think she's right. I'm wondering what Aquinas... Aquinas doesn't look at some of the questions she's looking at. Um, so it's hard to be sure. The impression is he might disagree with what she's saying. Um, certainly we took his literal words literally. Um, which is why she's feeling a need to argue this at length. So, a couple other examples there. Father's not in right now in response to asking his secretary, is father in? Now, that's the kind of question that when you ask the parish secretary, you know the answer is conditioned by a great many other things. Now, that is an example that you can see how you could easily be pushing the limit there. But certain answers have a context by which we know sometimes the words kind of mean nothing. And she summarizes there that last bullet point. People know very well not to expect the truth in lots of situations. And in fact, are not asking for the truth in many, with many of their questions. So the question, is Father in right now, really means, is he available? And the answer is no. Now, if I'm that kind of awkward, pushy person who says, I don't care whether he's available, I want to know, is he in there or not? Um, well, then the context has changed. Actually, the secretary has become the guard dog, yeah? Um, yeah? I think I understand, but... 
statement, are we saying that if the person who's asking the question doesn't intend to know the truth, that we don't have to give them the thing, we can just lie down, and it's not an actual sin? I'm going to correct you. What I'm saying here is it isn't a lie. It's a literal falsehood, but it isn't a lie. It's just you're asking me a question, and yes, the exact words you have used, I'm going to say something that literally speaking isn't true. But we just both know in this package of interaction that there's certain limits in what I'm communicating. Um, could we also extend this to like trying not to hurt someone's feelings? Like when someone asks, like for instance, do I look good in this shirt? Have I have I gained weight? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, but that's also in part because of the context of the question. So it does depend who's asking. So if I'm asking the doctor, am I overweight? I actually want a doctor's answer. Whereas if I'm asking my friend, do I look overweight? I'm not really wanting him to tell me. Um, or I might not be wanting him to tell me what's literally true. Have I gone bald on top? No. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Cameras are terrible things, you know. You can't lie, the camera doesn't lie. Okay, let's spell this out with some more extreme stretching of things. So, over page six here. How many of you have heard of the phrase a mental reservation? Yeah, the Jesuits were invented this thing called mental reservations. So we could subtitle this why everyone hates the Jesuits. Um, yeah. So, a mental reservation. When a phrase is used to mean something other than its literal meaning, then this is called a mental reservation. Either the meaning of the phrase is reserved to the user's mind and not necessarily communicated to others. So a wide mental reservation involves a difference between the literal and contextual meaning of a statement. So I think the phrase, father's not in right now, would be in that category. That the meaning of what I'm saying, I know what it means. I'm not fully communicating it to you. I'm mentally reserving the meaning of the words. What's called a strict mental reservation applies a meaning to words determined solely by the mind of the speaker and by no external circumstances or common usage. They, strict mental reservations, were condemned as lies by the Holy See on the 2nd of March, 1679. For example, I say no when I mean yes. So I'm using the word no, but in my mind, in this context, I, I say that means yes. Well, that's nonsense. Um, I can't just reserve the meaning to myself 
utterly devoid of any context or common usage. Sam? Okay. okay. You don't get the difference no, or the I'm context. Um, the let's go to page seven and we'll come back to the rest of that to see, in a sense, the historical context here. So, this, um, I've titled it a Jesuit defense of what they call equivocation. Equivocation meaning equivocating, hesitating about the meaning of the words. So, the context is the 16th century interrogation of persecuted English Catholics. Yeah, so 16th century, it had become illegal to be a Catholic in England, it had become illegal to be a Catholic priest in England. You are a Catholic priest. You are arrested, you are imprisoned, you are being tortured, and they're asking you, are you a priest? Do you have to say, yes I am? Well, no, the tradition says you don't have to push yourself forward for martyrdom. Um, so here I quote from a book um, listed there in the footnote, John Jared's Autobiography of a Hunted Priest. Now, if any of you are looking for some good spiritual reading, this is an amazing book. So this Jesuit priest, for decades, he was in hiding traveling all around England in secret, um, ministering to Catholics, an amazing apostolic spirit. Um, and he repeatedly got arrested and he repeatedly escaped. Um, and he talks about all this. Um, and so he, his superiors, when he got back to the continent at one stage, um, asked him to write it all down so it could be used for the formation of the next generation of Jesuits that were going over to, to work and to die frequently. So, this is a quotation from his autobiography. And he's referring to what a Jesuit priest had said. He, namely Rob, Father Robert Salville, uh, had told her that if upon her oath she were asked whether she had seen a priest or not, she might lawfully, i.e. morally, say no, though she had seen one, keeping this meaning in her mind that she did not see any priest with intention to betray him. A man may swear something he knows to be false with this intention, not to tell them, for no man is bound to answer every man to ask of him. Now that sounds a bit dodgy. Yeah? So, equivocation. A word or a phrase having two meanings. So the question, are there any Jesuits hiding in the house? And you answer, no. Well, one meaning is as underhood, understood by the hearer. No, there are no Jesuits hiding in the house. Another meaning as heard intended by the speaker is, no, there are no Jesuits in the house that I am willing to show you. Or there are no Jesuits in the house that you have a right to know about. And implicit in this would be that we don't all have a right to know all things. That secrets are meant to be kept. It's normal to have secrets. It's moral to have secrets. And that is expected by any reasonable question. 
So the questions that ask us to reveal reasonable secrets are unreasonable questions. And so that the whole exchange, the whole meaning of the words has lost any real significance in that exchange. But the Jesuit defense of this, to my mind, is rather weird and technical, and it all hinges on me meaning something in my mind different from what you, in receiving my words, are hearing me say. So it's a mental reservation. I reserve to my mind the meaning of the words as you hear. So as I say at the bottom of the page, um, in bold, the above moral analysis led many Protestants to hold that all Jesuits and Catholics are untrustworthy liars. Uh, this was since part of our legacy in England, sadly. Isn't that whole um, mental reservation violate the purpose of communication? Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so, so it seems very difficult to equate to make what the Jesuits argued in the 16th century agree with the tradition. But it hinges on this thing, a mental reservation. Let's come back to page six. So in that section, underneath the section on mental reservations, I have a different section. Um, back to what the catechism says here. A right to the truth. Um, so the catechism quotes St. Thomas Aquinas arguing that lying, why is it a problem, is contrary to the virtue of truth. He says, men could not live with one another if there were not mutual confidence that they were being truthful to one another. The virtue of truth gives another his just due. Truthfulness keeps to the just mean between what ought to be expressed and what ought to be kept secret. It entails honesty and discretion. Injustice, as a matter of honour, one man owes it to another to manifest the truth. So Thomas's point here, society could not function if we didn't trust each other. Society ceases to function when we reach that stage where we think everything the other person's saying is a lie. This is why we're in such a dangerous state right now with the media, where so many people in our culture no longer trust anything being said. You know, this is exactly what St. Thomas is saying. Everything begins to break down when that's the case. It is just normal to be able to expect the truth from someone who speaks. Okay, next bullet point there, I say, it's sometimes alleged that some people do not have a right to the truth, and thus we may lie to them. But I say, common theological opinion doesn't accept this notion. And I note, the first edition of the Catechism said, to lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead into error someone who has a right to know the truth. 
Now that right to know the truth is removed because everyone has a right to know the truth. But this notion was taken out of the final authoritative edition of the Catechism in order to follow more solid theological opinion. The final text thus reads, to lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead someone, anyone, into error. Not just someone who has a right to the truth. So here, I, then the final section here, I'm trying to summarize what I think is a, a safer analysis than the mental reservation line. And here, I'm basically following Janet Smith. So I say, in some contexts, we don't expect the truth from another. And the words we hear from him thus acquire a meaning from that context. So, for example, and here I'm quoting the Catholic Encyclopedia, so this is a, you know, a standard analysis of the tradition. The words, I am not guilty, derive a special meaning which they have in the mouth of a prisoner on his trial from the circumstance in which he is placed. It is a true statement of fact whether in reality he be guilty or not. Yet in the courtroom, in that context, the words guilty or not guilty are how I am pleading in the legal process. That's what the words mean. They acquire meaning from their specific context. Second example. When a torturer seeks information from his prisoner, their conversation lacks the normal context for words to have the type of meaning that would normally be read into them in other contexts. A man tortured who says, I don't know, would be assumed to be actually saying, I don't know in a sense that I'm willing to tell you. You know, the torturer said, but you lied to me. You betrayed my trust. Um, well, you were torturing me. That's... <laughs> The words acquired their significance, their context, their meaning from that. And third example, when a Nazi asks you, do you have Jews hidden in your attic? And a priest replies, no, meaning no, none that you can expect me to tell you about. I say these are not lies because the words spoken are not statements at variance with the mind. Rather, they are statements whose meaning comes from their particular context. That's what I would be seeking to argue. Now I note, again quoting the Catholic Encyclopedia, Pope Innocent III taught that Holy Scripture forbids us to lie even to save a man's life. St. Augustine puts another case that's become classical in the schools. If a man has hidden your house and his life is sought by murderers, and they come and ask you whether he is in your house, you may say that you know where he is but will not tell. You may not deny that he is there. That's Augustine's analysis. 
which seems pretty um, hardcore, strict. Um, broadly speaking, I think the Dominican line would be, in practice, when we're in a situation where we, in a sense, can't tell the truth, because there's some reason we shouldn't be, we shouldn't lie. But because we have, um, in lots of circumstances, a limited amount of time to think quickly, often we may find ourselves lying and it's not of great significance morally. But that's different from when we set out to lie. So setting out to lie is different from lying because I can't think of what else to say right now. Unlike the Jesuit who's saying, it's perfectly okay because when I say no, I mean yes. It's like that situation in the movie Silence, where you like, right? That's like a terrible movie. movie. Terrible movie. It is a terrible movie. But it's like he's, I wonder if that, that principle is being played. In Have you movie. read the book? Okay, so the book is utterly different from the movie. So the, the movie Silence is with the. Jesuits being tortured in Japan, yeah? Okay, so um, in the movie version, Jesus appears and he's saying, deny me, deny me, save your life, deny me. Even though the real Jesus in the Gospels says the very opposite, yeah? He who denies me before men, I will deny before the presence of my Father in heaven. So, you know, Hollywood Jesus never says what the real Jesus says. Um, <laughs> So, so, so I think the, the film fails, but do you want to articulate what, what, what exactly in the film are you pointing well, to? Well, I'm saying like he's, he denied Jesus, right? He denied but, Jesus, yeah. But maybe he, his mental reservation was, he was saying yes, or he was denying Jesus, but his mind was like saying no, I actually don't I'm not saying it's valid. I'm just saying I wonder if that played into, or this kid, that example, could play into this mental reservation. He's communicating it, it, something different than what he's actually thinking. Yeah. The Japanese had as their strategy for suppressing the Catholic Church to force Catholics to, well, to go against their conscience, to, to do what they, that they knew that if you force somebody to do what they know is wrong, you actually crush their moral integrity. So they, they went around and they had Catholics stamp on images of Jesus and Mary um, as a way of crushing their devotion to, to the Lord and Our Lady. that these actions have an effect on us, that they do mean something. But you aren't obliged to seek martyrdom. So St. John, uh, St. Thomas More would be a different example there. So you know St. Thomas More, Henry VIII had declared himself to be head of the Church of England, had declared that his marriage, even though the Pope didn't say so, his marriage to his second wife was okay. Thomas More didn't rush out and publicly denounce him. 
He didn't seek martyrdom. But he didn't, and he sought to avoid... Um, he didn't sign the declaration agreeing with what the king was doing, which is what the king wanted. And ultimately, because he refused to sign it, he was martyred. So you don't need to go out there shouting something to get yourself into trouble. But there are many occasions when we don't have to reveal something that puts us in trouble. But to directly intend to say something at variance with the mind that no reasonable person in that context would expect my words to mean is a lie. Whereas if you ask me, are you looking forward to the committee meeting this afternoon? And I say, sure. Well, that isn't a lie. You just know it's a common pleasantry. Um, okay, let's summarize these things together. So what have we said today? We've had a, a very brief overview of two of the commandments. The commandment about theft, and I've talked about what property and ownership means in terms of how theft is defined. The primordial gift of all goods to all of humanity, private ownership mediating that, but not being therefore absolute. And then theft, uh, lying that this, this general duty as a human being, as a social, rational human being, to communicate in a trustworthy manner which lying violates.